In 2005, I started a high school version of Facebook. What was your first impression of uh, Zuck when you spoke to him while you were building the high list? And did he talk about Oculus in your conversation? <laughs> I called him out of the blue. And I'm like, hi, uh, someone so is telling me they want to sell, buy this from you. Is that true? Are you guys going into high schools? Because we were freaking out. We were like, they go into high schools, we're toast. And he just, for 45 minutes, I didn't say a word. He just told me the whole strategy, which they actually did the whole thing. We're going to go into high schools and pods and workplaces. It's going to be your online identity. Like he had already figured it all out in 2005. Here's to the crazy ones, because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. What's up, everyone? I'm Alex Lieberman. And I'm Sophia Amoruso. Yo, this is Jesse Puji. And this is The Crazy Ones. What's up, everyone? This is Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew, and welcome back to The Crazy Ones, the show that is for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. And first of all, I want to thank the amazing listeners and viewers who have been writing in in hordes. We had one founder write into us saying that The Crazy Ones is effectively their unofficial advisor of their company. So thank you for all the support so far. For those of you that are watching for the first time, as always, I am joined by Jesse Puji, a.k.a. Baby Buffett, and then Sophia Amoruso, <laughs> the dean. Guys, you ready to do this thing? Ready. I like the nicknames. Yes. Yeah. What do you mean? You're, you're building your own mini Berkshire Hathaway, and Sophia, she has business <laughs> class. Of course she's the dean. So let's talk about the rundown for the day. We are going to be talking about a new social media app called Gas. It is number one in the charts ahead of Instagram, ahead of TikTok, ahead of Google, has a million daily active users after being out for only a month. Who the founder is, what the story is, and lessons you can learn as an entrepreneur. Second, we're going to talk about layoffs. There, unfortunately, is a lot of news this week about layoffs at companies big and small from Microsoft to Twitter, and Elon Musk wanted to lay off maybe 75% of the company, to Stripe, who is doing something that's known as a backdoor layoff. And we are going to finish today's episode by talking about tax strategies that we have used to save ourselves millions of dollars. So uh, guys, let's hop into this thing. Let's uh, check out a video from Nikita Beer, one of the co-founders of Gas, and uh, then we'll shoot the shit about it. How does gas work? How do you make it positive? Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Um, so the way that we've designed gas, uh, gas is similar to a lot of anonymous apps that exist in the app store today, but many of those have been plagued by bullying. And we use a novel mechanic where you answer polls about your friends that we write, and we make all these polls uplifting, polls that are like uh, most likely to be president or should DJ every party. And uh, teens vote on each other on these polls, and then they receive a message uh, saying that someone has picked them for these, uh, these, these questions. Well, that's clever. i got to say, that, that really is clever. First of all, I've never heard this host before, but for some reason, I just loved the way that he talked about gas after Nikita <laughs> talked about it. Uh, I need to start British by asking, accents, dude. They, they, they pay dividends. Jesse, were you, uh, did you get any uh, senior superlatives when you were in high school? I'm sure I did. I think I probably had most likely to start a company or be an entrepreneur. It wasn't a, wasn't a, everybody knew it about me back then. Sophia, did you have one? It's like class clown. Yeah, I, I didn't have one. So I'm, I'm envious just that you guys were actually in the, in the yearbook with a senior superlative. Uh, Sophia, what do you think about gas and what do you think is contributing to the fact that I last saw Nikita say that they're getting 30,000 downloads of the app an hour? 
Wow. I mean, I think Nikita's done a really good job. It seems like, you know, I've read some of the things that he's tweeted and written, and he has become just kind of a master of testing and iterating. So for him, and you can kind of see it in his voice when he's talking, I don't know if this is a personal really kind of like like a product to him that he like set out to do to change the world. I think he's really a technologist and someone who has built social products and is becoming better and better at it and obviously hit a stride with high school kids. It's it's a niche. Obviously high school kids are everywhere, but there really is no place for them to say nice things for one another. You show up and it's just kids are mean, you know, nobody's really engineering that kind of uh, activity. And, you know, they're talking about people who are good looking and crushes. And so it's not just like, wow, this person's good at sports or, you know, love their backpack. It's like, she has pretty eyes and it's kind of like a low key way of flirting, which I haven't seen anywhere. And is really exciting. It's like passing notes in class, right? Yeah. I mean, I love it. I think first of all, I, I think, first of all, like, uh, the fact that he's going after high schoolers, there's two things that come to mind for me. One is the point you made, Sophia, which is that it's probably not an audience that he is personally super passionate about. And I've always wondered to myself, how can entrepreneurs build businesses around problems they're not experiencing? But, like, Nikita, in my mind, is, like, the exception to the rule. He has figured out how to do that. But I think from a business perspective, it is probably the best demographic to build a social network around because I can't think of a time in your life that is filled with more like gossip culture, the, the desire to feel a part of a group FOMO if you don't feel a part of it. And so unfortunately what, you know, when you're in in high school, so much of your identity is dictated by what others think of you. Um, and that's not a positive, but I think what they've done is they've spun it into a really good thing where you get notified when people are saying that, you know, you're going to be most popular or you have the best eyes. And so I think what Nikita has done is amazing. And just to give people some background, because they didn't talk about it in the interview, Nikita basically built the same exact product in 2017. So Nikita founded an app called TBH and he, he built it in 2017. He was three months into building the company and Facebook acquired it for a hundred million dollars. And then in 2018, it was like nine to 12 months after they bought TBH, Facebook shut it down. And so for the last five years, Nikita has, I believe, been working as a PM at Facebook, but kind of very publicly not enjoying the corporate life. And so it's just very interesting to see him rebuild basically the same thing. But the tweet that just got me that Nikita put out yesterday, the day before, is he basically said... I no longer am a one-hit wonder, and it it just resonated so much because for people who want, are thinking about building second businesses, they were successful with their first business. There's always this fear of was it luck or skill, and am I going to have to prove that I'm actually good at this by building another thing? So it resonated really deeply. Jesse, what do you think about this? Man, I have so many different thoughts on this. Just hearing both of you guys talk, also the number one. Building consumer businesses and apps, consumer apps in particular, is so, so hard. So it's incredible. Like, I just think Turbin's off to this guy that, you know, Nikita, I don't know him that well, but he's he's obviously got a skill. And and I think 
you know, you guys may know that story I've told on Twitter. In 2005, I started a high school version of Facebook. And I don't know if I've, I've told you guys this story. but I haven't like, heard the full a, story. It was a year yeah. after Zuckerberg. It was the, the same co-founders I started Ampush with. And like, you know, we were, we were not the most creative product types, but we were like, oh, that thing's working for college. And we thought Facebook was not going to go into college, uh, high school. We're like, why would they ever hurt their brand equity by going into high schools? And we like looked around. We got it called the high list. We worked on it over the summer. The way we authenticated you was super cool. At that time, there was no internet. Like you couldn't Google things that easily. So we asked you specific questions about your high school, kind of like a credit check. Like what, what are your colors? What street is your high school off of to make sure because you don't have a .edu? Um, and we saw all the same viral things. We were, I don't know, we were 21, right? And Facebook launched into high school a few months after uh, we launched and basically were like 10 times our size overnight. We were just like, oh, this is going to be too hard. Let's throw the towel in. But um, it was called The High List. It was a, it was a fun adventure. Uh, but we started a version of it, and, and it's hard, man. It's, it's a really, really hard business to get anyone using it, to get growing. And so I think it's just incredible what, what he's accomplished. Well, I think. Why, why didn't The High List work out? We quit. I, I don't. I, no other reason than we quit. There was another business we were bigger than at that time called MyYearbook.com that ended up selling for nine figures. We were 21. I had a job offer at McKinsey. I was like, all right, whatever. I'm gonna, you know, we were almost raised angel money, but we were just we were kids. We didn't know what it took to really. Our view on it was, let's build it. If it works, like starts to work, we'll do it. If not, it won't. And then, like as you guys know, and we all know from building now, you got to get punched in the face several times and keep trucking before anything works. And we just didn't know. I, I don't think we appreciated how hard it was. And so we threw the towel in. It's actually a big regret. Like, I wish we had stayed with it um, because something would have happened. I'm not sure it would have been a high school version of Facebook, but something would have occurred for it. Um, but, but no, we, we shut it down. And what, um, what, what was your first impression of uh, Zuck when you spoke to him while you were building the high list? And did he talk about Oculus in your conversation? No, he did not. But the, the, fun, the backstory <laughs> there, just for a second, is the first idea we had for the domain was hsfacebook.com. And so we went and found the person who owned hsfacebook.com. We're like, can we buy this from you? And he's like, yeah, 20 grand. And we're like, yeah, we're in college. No, no thanks. And then he called us back at the end of the summer after we had launched. And he was like, by the way, Mark Zuckerberg wants to buy this from me. And we were like, BS. No, that's not true. What are you saying? We were like, prove it. So he forwards an email from Zuckerberg with Zuckerberg's 917. I know the, the you know, area code. And I was like, I got to call this guy. And so I, <laughs> I called him out of the blue. And I'm like, hi, uh, someone so is telling me they want to sell, buy this from you. Is that true? Are you guys going into high schools? Because we were freaking out. We were like, they go into high schools, we're toast. And he just, for 45 minutes, I didn't say a word. He just told me the whole strategy, which they actually did the whole thing. We're going to go into high schools and pods then workplaces. It's going to be your online identity. Like he had already figured it all out in 2005. Uh, That's which was like a year after they launched, which is cr- just crazy. But guys- anyway, I, the... Go ahead. No, no, no. I keep hearing this, and it's kind of foreign to me, the concept of building something, building a prototype. It could just be a Figma file or having a company for three months that has some traction and then selling it, which is pretty rare. But I had coffee with someone who's trying to build a dating app recently, and they were like, can you put me in touch with such and such dating app founder? Maybe we could just do that. This is I don't know if this is off topic, but what do you what do you think about that? Is that something you're thinking about at Ampush? Because a lot of people it's like seems like easier than building a large business. I have a great idea, I'm gonna sell it to an existing superpower, but I think that can I think it's few and far between. I would not tell anyone listening to ever try that. Like if that happens, if you're Nikita and in nine months they buy you for hundred million, God bless, like that's amazing. I don't I don't think that's the norm. 
Um, the other thing I was going to say just about the other thing that came up as both of you guys were talking was, you know, building the, the app for high school, like it's cool that it's very positively oriented. Um, you know, high school is, is such an interesting time. I think that like the one other thing is like, how do you grow the, like, how do you actually grow these things and turn them into, into businesses that, that become, you know, become real businesses. And I think that's, if you're excited about a consumer app, then go do it. In general, man, I feel like the it's entrepreneurship's already so hard. Like this is makes it a hundred times harder. And so, so if you're gifted like Nikita, great. But if you're somebody out there just thinking of a random idea, like maybe there's a different way to start a it, business. It's funny because someone asked basically the same question to Nikita on Twitter, and I was wondering this also. I was basically like, you know, this has inc- incredible acceleration of user base right now. But my biggest question or concern. It's like after a while, are people going to get bored of fill, filling out these superlatives? Like at what point, like have you filled out all the superlatives? You know who likes you. You know who hasn't voted on you and you're like fine with it. And what Nikita said to this person was he was basically like, I'm not thinking about the next five years. I'm getting all these amazing uh, responses and DMs from high schoolers who are saying things like, you know, I was – contemplating suicide. And now that I know that like, I actually have people who care about me or like, I always thought that I was ugly or people thought I was dumb, but I was Mm -hmm. like voted uh, most likely to go to an Ivy league. And so at least what he has talked about publicly is, is kind of these messages that he's getting um, has been largely the motivation for him. What I'll also say is I, I bet they are printing money right now because Mm -hmm. they haven't raised any money. I looked on LinkedIn. There's three co-founders and then two or three other people working on this, but all part-time. And I think a very high percentage of people are converting to the premium product, which I believe is $7 a week. So the way that the app works is that, you know, people will answer questions like most likely to be popular. And if, if someone selected you as most likely to be popular, you would get a notification. I believe like a flame saying like someone said you, you're most likely to, to be popular. And then what would happen is it would, it would be anonymous. It would say what grade the person was in that uh, voted on you and what their gender was. If you want to actually see who the person is, you have to pay for it. And to me, there's just like so much incredible like tension built up into that and FOMO, especially for high schoolers who n- want to know who has a crush on them or thinks they're cool. So I bet they're printing money right now. It's genius. I mean, it's like dopamine on top of dopamine. It's like he's engineering people to click and all the things that every social app has engineered with, uh, with the, with the loops and the loops. I sound like a technologist, <laughs> the, the loops. but it's literally like, you know, there's the dopamine of just opening the app and getting a notification and having something, you know, show up on your doorstep, like you've got mail, but also, literally you're getting something positive every time that you open the app. And if you think about it, it's the lowest, the least lift of human communication that I can think of beyond blinking or making an expression or maybe gesticulating. Um, You're literally pushing, pushing a button. Um, It's like you could train probably an ape to do this and have the same result, right? <laughs> we're, we're 99% ape, you know, we just, we are. The other thing that's cool just to, as a trend, I think is this sort of second or third generation of social apps, right? You know, there was, 
this Facebook, obviously, and Twitter and LinkedIn. It's like, oh, people are mean on those things. And I do think those, they do have the tendency because they drive only for engagement. And it's it's totally open to sometimes be the worst of humanity. But it's like, you know, the second one on that list was Be Real, which I've kind of been joking with you guys about. And it's it's all about you can't, you know, you, you have to take a picture of what you're actually doing in that moment. So you can't get all fancy and all, all dolled up. And then this one is coming out with saying positive things about other people. So it's pretty cool. Like, I think that's also a cool uh, trend we're seeing, which is like, let's use the power of this to actually drive, you know, because you can shift people's brain. The more everyone's science has proven that gratitude journals work and all these other things work. So if we can use the power of dopamine to be super positive all the time or drive more of that, that direction, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a really good lesson for entrepreneurs, even if you're not building a consumer social app, which is how important kind of market where the market's going and what trend are you or are you not playing into is. It, it reminds me of the um, the Mark Andreessen blog post about, you know, product, uh, market, and team, which do you think is most important to build a successful company? And I'd say early in kind of my life, I would have said product for sure. Like, of course, if right. you don't have a good product, nothing else matters. And the point that he made is he believes it's market. And I think you know, what uh, Nikita, his team and gas has done really well is it's playing into this market for one people have caught more anxiety, mental health challenge and openness around that than ever before. And, and the existing social platforms to your point have only perpetuated these issues at the same time, we've already seen proof that apps that lean into authenticity, being real positivity, whether it's be real or whether it's uh, paparazzi and other apps like it, um, it clearly is something that works. So I think the timing of this is great. What, uh, Sophia, what are some lessons that you think entrepreneurs who aren't building in consumer social but want to learn from Gas's success thus far can take away from this story? Yeah, I mean, I think creating uh, any kind of product that people want to share, that they want to engage with. You know, I've spoken about this a little bit. I did it with products. You've done it with your newsletter, creating, uh, you know, habits, right? You, with the morning brew, someone has a certain amount of time to open their email, see the most important news. You know, with Nasty Gal, it was like a lot of, like it was like new arrivals constantly, things sold out quickly. So there's, I think scarcity is a really big mechanism, which Be Real is capitalizing on. I think with TikTok, even the trends um, are a a bit of a scarcity model in terms of like, you need to get on this now, it's going to become outdated. Same with fashion, same with news. So engineering those habits Obviously, you know, a newsletter is probably a little bit healthier of a habit for somebody to build than, you know, clicking on TikTok and seeing what dance someone is doing. And there's a lot to learn on TikTok. I don't want to shit on TikTok, but this is something that I would say exists across both social apps and media businesses and fashion businesses at the same time. Yeah, my big takeaway is you guys know I always say this unfair advantage. Nikita has an unfair advantage. He's built this. He was inside the biggest, you know, inside of Meta, Facebook. Uh, you know, he, he knows how to build these things. And I don't know him at all, but I, I presume he, he, the things that would take me, the three of us, years to figure out are just they're basically common knowledge for him when he wakes up in the morning. And I just think for any entrepreneur out there, everybody has an unfair advantage. And, you know, the more you tap into yours, the more successful you'll be. Yeah. I yeah, think they talk about product market fit, but this is founder product fit. Totally. And that's something that people don't really think about. And that's something, 
you know, there's also founder market fit. If you know your market, I don't think he necessarily knows the high school market, but he is founder product fit and has found a way to tap, you know, there's different ways into being a founder and building the right product and fighting the right audience or, you know, selling mattresses or something that you're not super passionate about if you're the right person to build that, that business. By the way, I think this is always the tug and pull of entrepreneurs. After you do one thing, what, what what's going through your head is, do I do another thing that's quite similar to what I did? Because that's literally all I know. Like the only institutional knowledge I have is around the thing I built. And to your point, there's going to be founder product or founder market fit. Or on the other hand, like entrepreneurs, we're like fickle. We like, you know, building yeah. a lot of different things and you know, there's always for me, the itch of like building something that's so opposite from newsletters and media. And so I'm sure this is uh, something that Nikita probably thought about, but it makes so much sense, uh, why it's been successful Two two other lessons that I just want to share. The first is just amazing product design. Um, and this gets into what you're saying, Sophia, about urgency and scarcity. The first thing is like, it is so simple to use this product. You get polls, they're multiple choice questions, it feels like a game, you click on them. The second is the way that the invite engine works for gas is super smart. When a friend invites you to gas, you get a message that basically shows like a a wrapped up gift and it says that there's a compliment waiting for you. So basically there's someone that selected you in a poll and it's waiting for you to see it. And the invite expires in five minutes. So you have five minutes to go see who's given you a compliment. So I have to think the conversion rate on that is super high because, again, there's so much FOMO built into high schoolers wanting to know who said something, said, who has said something nice about me. The second lesson I just want to talk about is this model that literally dictates all of the ways that I think about marketing of products, whether it's media or physical product. It's the hub-and-spoke model. So at the end of the day, your spokes are your customers. So in the case of gas, it's high schoolers. And your hub is distribution channels that give you a lot of access at once to your spokes. So in the context of gas, by them going high school by high school, the high schools are the hubs and the high school students are the spokes. And the amazing part about this model for a social network is there are network effects built in. So for something like Morning Brew say a hub for our business would be going to universities and getting students signed up. But our newsletter doesn't get any better for every new student that signs up from the university. For gas, if you're a high schooler at Stuyvesant High School, by getting your friends to sign up, it actually makes the product better for you, which is obviously the power of network effects. And I think Hub and Spoke is such a great way to think about how do I leverage channels that get me in front of a lot of my customer so I don't have to go door by door or person by person to get them signed up for it? Someone yeah, I, I know called that reverse aging for a product. Like it gets better over time with more users, which I think is a really interesting way of putting that. Totally. I want to uh, I want to move on to, I guess, <laughs> a less positive uh, topic, <laughs> but uh, an equally as valuable one. So there have been uh, a lot of announcements around layoffs um, in the last few days. We had Microsoft announcing uh, 1,000 employees are going to be laid off. Obviously, that's a small percentage of their 221,000 employees. But still, when you hear about a very established company, you know, one of the 10 largest companies in the world talking about laying off people, it definitely perks people's ears up and it has them worry more about the state of the economy. You have Elon who said that he wants to cut 75% of people at Twitter. Stripe, it's so fascinating. Stripe 
They're not doing layoffs. It's not called layoffs. It's, it's what's known as backdoor layoffs, where basically they're requiring their managers to do a rating system of um, they have to answer a question, would you hire this direct report if you knew what you knew today? And you could answer yes, definitively yes, not sure, or definitely not. And they're required to make 10 to 15% of their answers, not sure or definitively not. So basically they're forcing managers to get employees to be given pips or, you know, being fired for cause and a layoff is technically where you're, you know, kind of uh, getting rid of people, not for performance, but based on market conditions. Given all of this, how do you guys think about layoffs? And more specifically, what does a good layoff look like versus a bad layoff? I know you've had experience with this, Sophia. So what are your thoughts? I've had so much experience with it. I mean, just responding to what you said about uh, a reorg being shrouded in an, you know, it is, people call it reorgs, people call it layoffs, people call it, uh, there's like so many different ways of packaging it that is pretty much a layoff. And if somebody's telling managers to cut 15% of their team, uh, that are the low performers, those people probably shouldn't have jobs there anyways. I think it means the company's bloated. Firing for pe- people for cause is a lot harder than laying people off. I know a lot of companies that instead of ever firing anyway, any anyone, they eliminate the position. When you yep. eliminate a position, you can't rehire into it because obviously you'd be lying and saying that you're just kind of getting rid of this one person and replacing them. As an employer, you're much more protected laying people off. Um, layoffs are a very uh, should be very planned. Uh, it's something, and you guys can, I think, speak to this just about probably scenario planning and the ways that companies, you know, think about layoffs. Hopefully, far enough in advance. I know that a lot of founders are like, well, if we lay people off, can we function? Will we be able to get to the next phase where we can raise money? Is it just going to put us in a standstill? So there's a lot of different kind of like, if I do this, will this still work? I have laid off, I don't know, I haven't personally laid off as many people as my companies have laid off. I think over time, I've probably, my businesses have laid off 300 people. Um, And that is... One of the most challenging things, when you plan for reductions, layoffs, or a reorg, you want to be transparent with people. And it can be very selfish as uh, an employer to, you know, when people know that maybe the company's not performing or even worse, you're not telling them that it's not performing, but they get whiffs of it. People ask, are there going to be layoffs? People aren't stupid. And if you don't treat them like adults and say, this is where the company is, and this is what we got right at Girlboss, which we didn't get right at Nasty Gal, was saying, hey, this is where the company's finances are. So I had sold Girl boss at the end of 2019, COVID hit. We were somewhat of a media company, really largely based in events and brand partnerships. Brands pulled their dollars, as you know. Events were really hard to do. And so the second time around, we said, listen, like this is where we are. If we can't get this amount of revenue in the door by this date, this is what's going to happen. And giving people the opportunity to look for other jobs or scenario plan for themselves and protect themselves. It was a very like loving, transparent thing with very specific deadlines around if this, if this, then that. And so you, you once told, people, 
Yeah. You told employees, like, if we do not hit X revenue target by Y date, we will have to let people go. Yes. Like, this is how a business runs. It won't be responsible for us to retain staff. Our greater responsibility is to protect the business and the business's longevity. You know, this is something that everybody should understand, even about their personal finances. Um, And people thanked us, like, would we had to make layoffs? I got thank you emails and there's just like nothing better than having to make a decision that hard, having your team understand the entire context and appreciate the graceful, you know, dismount that you are able to give everybody with a sense of dignity. People just want dignity. And if you treat them like a human resource, that's when they sue you. That's when they come back and say, I wasn't right. treated like a human. Like, your company has money. I'm going to try to take it from you. And I've had that happen as well. And that is uh, real hard. And I think it starts, the, you know, as entrepreneurs, when you talk to someone who's going to start a company, they're like, I have an idea and this is what I want to do. And I have a market. And I mean, I'm sure all of us were like that. Okay, I have a cool idea. I have a market. And I try my best early on with entrepreneurs to say, but are you passionate about people and leadership? Because you guys know, and I know that pretty much within five or 10 people working for you, more of your job is about people and about leadership than it is about the idea and about the market. It's about all of them, of course. But I think when you, before you have a company, that's all you think about. And then very quickly, the, running the company becomes about people and leadership. So I think that's just like an important reframe for anyone who's starting a company or going to run one. The other thing that I think a lot about is like before you even ever get to the layoff, what's the philosophy, right? And, and Netflix did that great thing of we're a team, not a family. I think it's really tough. To, if you're going to tell people you're a family, you got to behave like family. And family doesn't fire people. They find other things for them to do. And there are companies, by the way, that operate like that. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're going to run your business, if you have investors, if you're trying to hit ambitious targets and excited targets, you can't just, you know, you can be an optimist, but you also have to explain we're a team. And you'll see Baseball players love each other. They'll win a team, and then the next day they'll get traded, and and it works because everybody kind of gets understands what they're signing up for and and how and why that works. And and I think in my experience, people feel like it's a business. They know it's a team. They're very they understand that part of it. Then then all of a sudden something bad happens or something's going on in the business. You can say you know be ruthless about business, but compassionate about the people, and and you don't forget you're being a human. Now what oftentimes happens is. And we saw that with like the better mortgage guys, like you start freaking out, you start going, Oh my God, I've ruined it. I'm a bad person. And so then instead of thinking about the other people in those moments, you're thinking about yourself. Yeah. And that's, I, I, be when, speaking, speaking of uh, better mortgage, I want us to roll the tape. Uh, this has become like an infamously bad <laughs> layoff. I want us to roll it. And then I want us to talk about kind of lessons from this video and some rules of thumb for entrepreneurs who may or may not have to broach these types of conversations over the next year or so. If you're on this call, you are part of the unlucky group being laid off. Your employment here is terminated effective immediately. It's been a really, really challenging decision to make. I've, this is the second time in my career I'm doing this and I do not, do not want to do this. The last time I did it, I cried. Um, this time, I hope to be stronger. Jesus, uh, I, I, Jeez. I've now watched this like four times oh, in prepping for this no. episode. That one line of "I, I mean, cried, I cried last time I did this, and I hope to be stronger" is going to yeah. go down in the history books. 
Let, let's yeah, let's talk about. I, I was just going there too, Alex. Like the, you know, t- typically with with a layoff, but honestly, with all leadership, empathy and responsibility are the core, right? And by the way, I don't think you can fake those things. I tried faking them early in my career. Someone told me we talk like this, and everyone could see right through it. They could see through that I wasn't actually feeling for them and feeling the empathy. So if you first have to build that, you have to build that muscle of empathy and and responsibility. And typically if you're going to deliver a message like that, I mean, he he focuses all on himself first of all. Right. But it also doesn't take any responsibility. He's just like, Oh, this is hard for me guys. Like, Oh God. I mean, it's the way I think about it is number one, empathy. Hey, this is what's happening. And today's a really tough day for you, a human day. You have to go home and do something. And I bear the responsibility for what is about to happen to you. And I take that and I, you know, I made a mistake and, and I, you know, I, I, by the way, like get real mad about the HR playbooks of not trying to get sued and I throw them out. Like, I don't care. I'm going to say what I want. I'm going to be a human being to these people. And then obviously mm-hmm. the format of it, the zoom that like, you know, I've done one big layoff. I've done some smaller ones, but the big one we did, you know, we individually met with every single start at 9am. It was all planned. We met with every individual at 9am. I didn't, how many people was it? It was probably close to 20, let's say, yeah. um, Met every single person before anyone even walked in the more or less before anyone walked in the door, right? So everyone who was get affected knew it in an individual meeting with their manager, and you know, me in some cases, if I was their manager. And then we sent an email out to everyone, and then we had a meeting with with everyone. And you know, they, there's a, another adage around like when you do a layoff, people pay attention. The remaining people look like, how did you treat those people? Because they they know, right? And it took me a long time to appreciate that, like. When you control someone's salary and you control their livelihood, you'll never be the same as them. And you can't, even if you want to be buddy-buddy with them, it's never the same. And you have to take that responsibility and be very careful about how you how you manage it and how you wield it. But that's how we did it. it was They all knew first individually. You know, they all their packages, whatever. Then we announced it. And then we met with the whole company to kind of talk through it. Uh, but it was a lot of, hey, I, I take responsibility. I... I set the strategy for the company. I've decided on the resources and I made a mistake. That mistake has a human consequence for you. And I know it's a super hard day for you. And, you know, th- th- that was sort of the, the conversation, hey, you know, and, and back to the team thing, like, and to Sophia's point, like when people know the business and they understand what we're trying to accomplish, they know what they're signed up for. It, it doesn't hurt at, you know, they go, Hey, we were trying something ambitious. It didn't work. And, and, you know, we're going to be, be okay. But it's that, that videos. It's a tough one. It's cringy. Okay. Let's finish up today's conversation with uh, another startup AMA. We've actually gotten this question from a number of listeners, so it's about time that we answer it. We've had listeners ask us that I've heard so many founders talk about the importance of tax planning when you build a business. And then they'll go on to say that I haven't done it either because the resources to know how are basically non-existent or gibberish or it's super boring and I never find a way to prioritize it. So I just want to go around the horn and talk about what are tax decisions you've actually made in building your businesses that have had a big enough impact such that it's worth founders spending their time on it. Jesse, I'll start with you. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll talk through sort of my, my mindset on these things. And I actually own entities right now across S Corp, C Corp and LLC. So I literally own stock in all three types, depending on the business and before I start, I think there's a couple of things I, I'm not a new founders. I have this conversation with. First of all, lawyers and tax advisors, good ones, great ones, are worth their weight in gold. 
And a great one is someone who is like has an opinion, but is flexible enough to adjust with you. Typically, I find them in either one state, like they are so opinionated, you can't even think for yourself or they have no opinion, which is which is not valuable. That, that With that said, the other thing I tell a lot of new founders is that does not absolve you of responsibility for getting ahead of this, talking to friends, knowing the different laws, uh, because there's millions of dollars on the line potentially. So that's that's my preamble. You know, the, the corporate structures at a high level, there's the LLCs and S-Corps, which are pass-through entities, which means you only get taxed once on income. So you make a dollar of profit. It gets passed through to you as a person. The company does not pay any taxes on it. And there's C-Corps, which is most traditional publicly traded and venture-funded, which are two layers of tax- taxation. It means the company pays tax, and if you give money to the individuals, they pay tax. And so that's at a super high level. Those are the two structures that, you know, across the S corp, sometimes you'll do them for reasons. You usually want those to be very closely held, meaning only a few people own them because there's a bunch of restrictions around how money flows inside and out of them. C corp and LLC. I recently went through a decision-making process around that for, for Kahani. And there was a, there was a couple major things we thought about. I think number one was, are we building this business for, to be profitable for a long period of time? And if so, we wanted to pass that through so that we could pull money out of it without getting taxed twice. So, you know, the other big thing that came up is QSBS. So QSBS stands for Qualified Small Business Stock. It was a law, I think, in 2010 that came from Obama. And the way it works is if you own stock in a C-Corp only for five years and you started it with, like, less than $50 million in assets, you can essentially sell it. Let's say you sold it for $10 million, just to keep the math simple. You, the entirety of that $10 million would be tax federal tax-free. So you wouldn't pay any federal taxes on it. So it has to be a C-Corp. You've had to have held it for five years, and then you would have exited it. So if, if the plan is not to necessarily be super profitable, hold it, I think, between five and seven years, let's say, and then sell it, I think QSBS is, is you know, C-Corp basically wins out from a tax optimization perspective. The other cool thing you can do is, like, in Kahani, I own a big chunk of it. Obviously, Gateway X owns a big chunk of it. My wife owns a big chunk of it. So we, you know, we're we're double or triple dipping into it. And like, IRS has not uh, said whether or not that's going to count or not. But if it doesn't, then you're the same as you would have been otherwise. So you might as well. That there's kind of the world is debating it right now. By the way, none of this is tax advice or information. Get your own. Get your own advisors. <laughs> I'm not taking liabilities for this. But. Uh. That's, and then LLC is like for the things that are longer, Gateway X, for example, is an LLC, Growth Assistance LLC, because we expect those to be long-term profitable operations, and we don't want to have the double layer of taxation. Uh, so that's kind of my one-on-one side, how I think about it. Uh, and QSBS is a huge part of it, especially if you think you'll sell the business at some point, and, and you'll sell it, and it can make a, you know tax-free money. Yeah, I was going to say, you're not giving tax advice, but you really should take an affiliate based off of everyone that chooses to uh, to at, go forward with QSBS treatment now. Um, yeah, I mean, all I'll say is QSBS is something that my co-founder and I found out about in probably 2019 because Morning Brew was originally a Michigan LLC. The reason it was originally a Michigan LLC is we started the company when we were in college. Our original lawyers were free lawyers that were in the legal clinic at the law school at Michigan. And we were eventually told that we we should switch to a C-Corp, a Delaware C-Corp, because Delaware is historically uh, provides the best, most flexible treatment for startups. But also, if we were ever going to raise venture money, typically funds prefer uh, C-Corp structures over other structures. And I don't know the exact reason. You guys may know this. Um, but the other piece of they, it— They don't what, want tax liability. 
So if the company is profitable, then all of a sudden these funds that are their LPs have, they don't get the money because the company doesn't have to push the money out, but they still have to pay the taxes on the money, which is one of the hallmarks of a pass-through entity. Totally. So there's yeah, a good that, and the bad of the pass-through. That's why they don't want, oh, I have to pay a tax bill for money I've never seen. No way. Yeah, that would suck. Um, and so we were told about QSBS because um, a friend of ours had said how a lot of Uber employees weren't aware of QSBS when the company went public and they lost out on millions of dollars of savings. And so, yeah, I mean, QSBS has saved me millions of dollars in taxes. And to your point, Jesse, there are ways where you can actually multiply the benefits. So just so everyone understands it, like if Jesse has stock under his name or Kahani, he has stock under, say, Gateway X and Gateway X's accounts, and then his children have stock, and then his I wife have has a trust, stock. the Ricky Trust, the Sabrina yeah. Trust, and the, each of them would get their it, own. It multiplies the benefits. So all of a sudden you go from 10, 10 million of tax free gains to hypothetically 60 million of tax free gains. So it can be very, very meaningful. Um, and the, the other thing I'll add is if you're an LP in uh, a venture capital fund, you can also qualify for QSBS and every company that the the fund invests in, that is a C-corp that uh, you hold the stock for five years in, you get QSBS benefits. So it can be multiplied across the portfolio. Same thing if you're an angel investor. If you're writing a 5, 10, 20, 50K check into something, same benefit. You don't pay on the first $10 million. But just reinvest it in another C-Corp, and as long as the total time is five years, you'll be fine. Won't, don't pay taxes. I think this is just a really, you know, talking about taxes is an incredibly important thing, and it's super unsexy. So many of us aren't educated on it. Uh, so many founders lose money that they could have kept if they knew these things. So many employees lose money that they could have kept if they knew these things. And the people who make the most money are, and hold the keys to this are the people who have the educations or the access to the tax advisors and the attorneys. And I was going to say, go get good tax attorneys and go get good tax advisors and recognize that in today's day and age, one of the amazing things is you go to Twitter, you go to Reddit, and at least they'll start to give you the questions you can ask. And it's free. Like like 30 years ago, you had to go to a lawyer or you had to go to someone fancy. And by the way, then you can meet tax attorneys and advisors. And I, every time I, I'll go set up five meetings with new ones and they're trying to sell me on the business, I'll be like, well, what do you think about this? And how would you approach this? And I learned so much through having those things for free because they're all trying to sell me. They're not charging me for the first hour I meet them. And so you just get this amazing education yourself. And then, you know, just, I don't know if you guys do this. I, I meet with my tax advisors every other week throughout the year. Every Why? other week? Every other week. It's a 20, 20, what? 20 to 40%. Well, if, if, if there was some part of your business, Alex, that's worth 20 to 40% of what you're going to ultimately achieve, wouldn't you manage it at least every other week? I mean, everything else, every other part of it, the advertising sales, the, this, the, that you manage daily or weekly, and somebody said that to me once. I, didn't, I wasn't doing that. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. And so I'll tell them what's going on in the business. I'll give them an update on this. I'll go, oh, like recently they decided one of the companies I've started can be passive income that can offset against real estate passively because I'm not spending that much time on it because I told them that. And so if you're not actively managing this thing, you know, you're leaving, you're leaving a lot on the table. So I do every other week I meet with them. Yeah. I mean, to that point, I, I definitely don't talk to my tax attorneys every other week, but I for sure think it is worth talking to them a lot. And I will say the the best money spent after we sold Morning Brew, other than my dog Rambo, was on the tax attorneys who helped with structuring around this. Like it, it was worth 10 times over. So yeah, I totally agree with the point that 
really good tax attorneys are worth their weight in gold. So uh, on that note, make sure you get good tax advice uh, and shoot us an email at thecrazyonesatmorningbrew.com. Let us know if you have pushed forward with QSBS because we will be sending a bill to you. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, we, we love having these conversations. Uh, we hope that this was another great episode for you all. And we want to hear from you. So if you listen to the show and you have any feedback for how episodes can be better in the future, or you have requests for topics like big challenges that you're going through as an entrepreneur right now, shoot us an email at thecrazyonesatmorningbrew.com and uh, let's get the conversation going. Thanks, y'all. See you next week. Thanks, guys. Peace. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.